Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Melvin. In this episode, I speak with writer, holistic birth coach and consultant, health coach, mother of eight, and radical birthkeeper, Yolanda Norris-Clark. Yolanda is also a teacher of mine, and it was a real honor to have her on the podcast. Yolanda discusses her journey in and out of radical feminism, the insidious parallels between trans ideology and the dominant Rona narrative, her longtime work of reclaiming the language of womanhood, and how it's afforded her ample clarity in delineating between the regressive gender constructs bolstering trans ideology and the wisdom of discerning bodily autonomy. Yolanda shares the impact of realizing the world is not safe for women and speaks to the erosion of human rights in light of our current Rona-heavy times. Hi, Yolanda. Hello, Isabella. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, for, For the women who are listening and watching who don't know who you are and what you do, would you mind just for sharing a little bit about yourself and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a writer and a holistic birth coach and consultant, um, health coach, uh, birth trauma consultant, birth educator, and non-midwife, or as we sometimes say, radical birth keeper Um, and that means that I support mothers all over the world who are seeking to learn about and experience the process of pregnancy and birth as the holistic spiritual transformational journey that it is and so I do a lot of online coaching with women and their partners all over the world and I also witness births in person um, as I've been doing for 15 years now um, and I'm also a midwifery teacher and I'm the co-instructor of the Radical Birth Keeper School with Emily Saldea who does Free Birth Society. As you know I'm a graduate of the, the Radical Birth Keeper School and, and one thing that I well I love everything about the Radical Birth Keeper School but but I really really enjoyed the segment that um, you wrote for really talking about what radical feminism means to you and and just kind of uh, the disclaimer really the framework that that the school operates from a radical feminist analysis and and how rare that is these days to to sign up for a birth training or a doula training or midwifery school whatever it might be in the field of women's health and birth um, for that to be explicitly clear Um, and you know as we see every organization and kind of training be taken over. I think there's just going to be an increasing demand for um, programs and for coaches and consultants who not only sheepishly still use the words woman and mother, but adamantly and very distinctly loudly proclaim why they're continuing to use the words woman and mother and not uh, erasing erasing women. Would you first maybe go into um, your trajectory into birth and then radical feminism, how those two intersected, how did radical feminism start to weave its way in into your life? Yeah, that's such a great question. Thanks for that, Isabella. And you know, I have to, just to be 
brutally honest and maybe to complicate things unnecessarily, but I should say that I don't know if I necessarily would identify as a radical feminist or maybe even a feminist anymore. But that actually has so much to do with this whole conversation, which for me is really rooted in this concept of what it is to kind of hold an identity. So I do very much align with radical feminist ideas and ideals in, in many ways, nonetheless. So maybe I'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, I, um, I just turned 40. I went to UBC um, 23 years ago, and I was enrolled in uh, women's studies and uh, English literature. I was at UBC at a time now, uh, that I realize now, in retrospect, that was actually kind of in the midst of uh, the transition away from women's studies to what is now known as gender studies. So this was in the kind of late 90s. And um, it was really interesting for me to be there and, and interesting now for me to look back on that time because what was happening was, like as I said, this transition away from kind of the second wave feminist body of work and into a more um, kind of post-structuralist, post-modernist approach to um, really a lot of the uh, domains in academia, actually, not, not just uh, women's studies, which became gender studies actually during the time that I was at school. And I felt really out of place. Um, and actually, I felt like I was too stupid to understand these concepts that um, you know, we're really rooted in the work of, of Foucault and, um, and other, uh, you know, French postmodern philosophers um, and this sort of idea of, of relativism, right? And, uh, and um, I did really, really well at school, but I felt like a fraud because basically I would sit down to write these papers and the more complex and um, incomprehensible I could make these papers, the better my mark would be. And so it just, I, I felt like I was sort of gaslighting myself continuously. Anyway, um, and at the same time, I was in the process of um, having my two first babies. I was embroiled in this very dysfunctional relationship with an older man who um, ended up having a, a lot of issues around you know, his own sexuality, um, in particular uh, around um, the issue of you know, sexual exploitation and, and porn culture. And so that experience kind of dovetailed with what I was going through in academia. And at the time, I just felt like my life was a disaster, but I feel really grateful actually for so much of that now because I can look back and I feel like I have this interesting perspective on um, everything that's happening in the world right now because I think that what is going on right now in the world with with Rona, with um, the evisceration of sexed language in birth culture is very much related to um, all of these sort of intellectual um, kind of waves of, of approaches that, um, that kind of were fomented in academia and have now proliferated throughout the world. So I had that experience at university going to UBC and I didn't really at the time, I didn't really, I didn't see what, what it was becoming, but I would guess, how many years ago would it be now? Um, I have been directly involved, well, 
kind of immersed in and, 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 and involved in kind of activist work underground, however, around um, reclaiming um, the language of, of womanhood for about a decade. Um, and it's really only been until very recently that I have been actually public about that. So my awareness of you know, the um, gender ideology uh, really came to the fore about 12 years ago um, on a trip that my husband and I made to Toronto. We had one child at the time um, and I was already in the world of birth then. And it's interesting because I've always considered myself to be a passionate um, activist uh, for um, justice and and equality, I mean, that's a complicated notion, um, but, but justice, certainly. And so, you know, the epithet, it's become a bit of an epithet, the social justice warrior thing is a bit funny because, you know, I was that kid in grade three who stood up in class and like defended the young gay child that I was friends with um, against being bullied by, by our peers. And so, you know, I've always felt very, um, very on side with, um, you know, the gay rights movement um, as a feminist as well. You know, I felt like that gay rights and feminism have always gone hand in hand, or, or so I thought. I, I still feel that way, and I think that was the sort of the, the gesture um, that was taking place throughout the second wave um, kind of feminist movement, of, of which my mother was, was a part. So my mother always identified as a feminist. So I grew up in this kind of environment that was very leftist, very liberal, like very classical liberal, um, and... Um, yeah, very, very open-minded, I thought, as a, as a kid growing up. So 12 years ago, my husband and our first child, who was then just a year and a half, we took a trip to Toronto. Um, my husband and I are both ceramic artists, so we were doing an arts-related event in Toronto. And we stayed with two friends of ours who were really close friends of ours, um, a gay couple um, in Toronto. And um, it was during that trip that I had a conversation with them um, because we had been introduced to one of their friends who, um, who identified as queer and, you know, who had relationships with people of, of both sexes. And, and of course, that's great. Like I, if pressed, I suppose, you know, gun to the head, I would have to admit that I guess I'm bisexual. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm queer as queer goes, I, I guess. Although I don't, like I said, I have a lot of ideas about the whole concept of identity. So I don't really hold that. I mean, for all intents and purposes, people from the outside world perceive me to be a heterosexual woman. I'm in a monogamous relationship. I have been for 15 years with my husband. We have a bunch of kids. So I don't hold to the idea that, um, like, if I guess I were bisexual deep down, that that would accrue to me some kind of, um, kind of reduction in my privilege, I guess. Like they're really, what, what I see happening right now, um, and I'm sure you've had so many conversations with amazing, I mean, I love all of your interviews. Um, I'm sure this has been observed so many times. I, I know it has, but it's so interesting to see that we're now like, we like kind of, uh, it, privilege and oppression are now sort of used, it almost seems to, to kind of stack up, um, to, to weight both sides uh, in a strategic kind of way that really doesn't sit well with me. Um, so anyway, I was having this conversation with these friends in Toronto 
And they pointed out to me um, in conversation that they have a friend who, who identifies as a woman um, and who, uh, who, who considers herself to be a woman. And I, I sort of said, well, well, oh, I mean, sure. Like, I'm open-minded. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with, like, I, of course I'm not. Yeah, and, and, and we sort of talked more, and I sort of said, but, but I mean, they're not actually a woman, right? Because to be a woman involves, like, literally being a physical woman. So, I, I mean, I think it's wonderful. I, I want to live in a world where everyone feels secure enough in themselves and free enough in, the, in themselves that they, that they can adorn their bodies however they like, that they can express their personalities in whatever way, way they wish without fear of, you know, retribution or, 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 or you know, discrimination. Uh, although I also believe personally that discrimination is, um, it, it's, it, it, it has to be allowable in a just society. So, um, you know, so we had this kind of interesting comp uh, complex conversation and, and I left sort of feeling unsettled and I really couldn't put my finger on it because I, I certainly got the message very loud and clear from, from this gay couple, friends of ours, that, that it was correct for me to agree that this male friend of theirs had every right to be a woman, whatever that, that really means. And so I was so new to this whole concept that I felt a little bit, like I had a bit of a delayed reaction. I really had to kind of go home and go like, huh? That doesn't really, that doesn't really make sense. Like I, I, I had already at that point had three children uh, come out of my vagina. And so I sort of like, it just seemed a little weird, you know? And I, I mean, I say that really quite genuinely. Um, it's just a little, it just felt a little weird. Um, and you know, this is an interesting thing. Ah, I don't know. I get into so many conversations about this topic with, with people from every place on the spectrum of, of kind of uh, awareness, understanding, interest. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> the venerable Posey Parker a few years ago um, in one of her um, you know, priceless tweets, she said something about, um, you know, a decade ago, a six foot four you know, bearded man in a dress trying to enter the women's changing room would have been seen universally as the threat that we are no longer capable of claiming such a phenomenon to be, right? And, and, and it is really true. I mean, it's, it's quite astonishing to see the, just the trajectory of the kind of public um, conversation around around this whole issue. So, you know that that happened. That that trip to Toronto happened, um, and then that 18-month-old that we had taken to Toronto grew up a little bit. So a couple of years later, and I started to notice this conversation now coming to the fore in in the public. You know, just a little bit here and there. You know, this kind of idea of trans rights, and um, and I kind of watched. And at that point. It actually didn't take me very long at all. Like, I, I think I tried, you know, for a couple of months to sort of be like, yes, of course, it's completely fine for any man at any point 
throughout their lives to wake up and decide that they're women and then to be like, I just, uh, no, it's, it's being female is a physical biological reality. And, and of course this was so informed by my, my experience of motherhood as well. So fast forward a couple of years, my, our, our son is now maybe five, maybe four, four or five. And all of this is happening kind of in the media, starting to proliferate in the media. And we were quite, um, I wouldn't say avid at all, like lazy, um, kind of reflexive uh, CBC listeners. So the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is, is the sort of like the state. I mean, I, I actually think of it as um, like the Ministry of Truth uh, at this point. Uh, now, but but back then, a few years ago, my husband and I would listen to the CBC. It's like NPR, right? BBC, NPR, CBC. It's kind of the you know the liberal sort of leftish, not super left, but you know it was like correct and decent people listen to the CBC, and so that's what we did. And you know, I was noticing more and more stories on the CBC of you know trans kids, especially, and it really struck me that in every single one of these stories, there were kind of markers or signals that were exactly the same. So the, the, the sort of fundamental structure of all of these stories were all exactly the same. It was a family and they perceived that their child was wearing the wrong thing for their sex or playing with the wrong kind of toys for their sex. So, you know, little Bobby is just always wanting to put on the princess dresses and he just loved to prance around and all he ever wanted to do was to play with the little dollies. And so we knew right away that he was trans. I mean, it would be so interesting to do kind of a, like a compendium of, of every media story featuring a trans child and the kind of triumphant coming out of, or the, you know, the triumphant acknowledging of their, their true identity, right? Because these stories are all the same. There, it, it, it wouldn't be possible for this experience to occur outside of the structure of gender. Right, and so I'm sure as well. A lot of your guests have probably observed, and I, I have this experience experience too. I was born in 1981, and my mother and I, a fem, you know, she's a feminist. She identifies as a feminist. We've had so many conversations about how, when I was born in 1981, she was so excited to be able to offer her daughter a life free of gender, because my mother, who was born in 1950, she remembers not being allowed to wear pants, right? And so I grew up like wearing like brown corduroy, you know, overalls and playing with like the rainbow Lego and climbing trees and being told that, yeah, you're a girl. That's great. Do whatever the heck you want. You know, be whoever you like. I had short hair actually um, it, during several years of my elementary school experience. And I remember um, being bullied uh, and being called a lesbian, actually, um, as a young girl, because I had short hair, right? Um, and actually, I had a lot of experiences as a, as a young girl, too, that have really brought to my awareness what I think is the incontrovertible likelihood, anyway, that I probably would have been one of those girls who would have identified as, as trans, um, because I really remember um, feeling 
devastated by the changes that were happening in my body, not because of anything inherently wrong with my body, and I was aware of that too, but because I could see that being female in this world is not safe. And I noticed receiving attention from men and boys uh, that indicated to me that I was no longer what I had felt I was up until that point, which was a human being, but that I had now been rendered a, um, a sexual object uh, for the enjoyment, the commentary, you know, scrutiny of men, right? And what that ended up leading to for me was, you know, quite a serious eating disorder that was really rooted in an attempt to desexualize myself and to um, minimize my presence in the world, really. Um, and so all of this is so, so very much related. And so, you know, when, when our son, my third child, but the first child that my husband and I have had together, when he was around four or five, all of this is kind of coming up in, in the mainstream news, um, in the media. Um, and our son started to uh, really feel drawn to dresses and sparkly shoes and sparkly tiaras. And we watched this just with delight, actually, because it was so sweet. I mean, a five-year-old child who's playing dress up, like this is what kids do, right? And I had also really made a very concerted and conscious effort as a mother to raise my children, as I still do make the same attempt now, um, I have eight kids overall, but um, anyway, to really raise our children outside of the strictures of gender. Now, I think that being a mother, we like to think we have power over how our children see the world. Um, and in so many ways we do, but I think the culture is stronger than individual mothers, um, sadly. And so um, that idea of raising our kids outside of gender, I think is um, an impossible one, but nonetheless a laudable one that I, 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 I commend any parents in, in attempting to do. Um, but I was also seeing other parents go about that in a way that was totally different from how we were trying to do this. So I had some friends who, who were teaching their children that they were neither male nor female, but that they were like non-binary. And, and I think, you know, thinking back to those experiences, I, I'm actually seeing somewhat less of that now. I think that there is, I think that we are kind of moving through this, this in a way, or again, maybe this is just part of the, the sort of divergence that we were mentioning earlier. But, but to my mind, escaping the, the, the kind of, the, the dangers of, of, of gender is actually rooted in acknowledging the fundamental binary nature of what it is to be a human being and what it is to be a mammal. I mean, human beings are a sexually dimorphic species. And so what I wanted for my children was for them to know and love and appreciate their sexed bodies. And at the same time, to recognize and understand that, that 
all of the accoutrements of our culture, um, hairstyles, clothing, you know, toys, that is culture. I'm actually still really wrestling with this idea of the masculine and the feminine. Um, because for several years, especially when I was kind of new to radical feminism, and I was really um, kind of entrenched in exploring the, the politics of radical feminism, I experienced a real, um, I don't know, it was, I had to really, huh, how do I explain this? Discovering radical feminism really rattled me. Um, because on one hand, it was such a relief because I had moved through the sort of early part of my life, my, my early adulthood, feeling really out of step with the culture. Like, I, I really hated porn culture and I really didn't like a lot of the kind of, um, you know, just the, the overt kind of pornographication of, of, of culture as well. So porn culture on one hand, but then the way that porn has sort of, um, you know, bled into the rest of culture. Um, but people would say to me that I'm a prude and I didn't really know how to refute that. You know, it was like, well, maybe I am, I guess. I don't know. I just really, I'm not into this. So if that makes me uncool and prudish, so be it. And so I didn't, I didn't have a framework. I didn't have a lens. I had no analysis. I just had really like, like my, the, my feelings about what I was seeing take place in the world. And, you know, watching young friends of mine, you know, kind of get into like the kind of clubbing scene and, 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 and really be exploited. Um, and I had my own experiences in that sort of realm as well. And so when I discovered radical feminism, it felt like coming home. Like I felt so comforted to know that there were other women who, who shared my perspectives and that there was a kind of political um, container for all of these feelings and ideas that I had around what it is to, you know, feminism, not as an identity, but rather as a, um, as a, 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 a political lens and, and a, a, a desire to, to liberate women from, from the oppression of, of patriarchy. And that whole idea has shifted a little bit for me now um, because and so, okay, sorry, backpedal super quickly. When I first found, found radical feminism, it was very comforting for me. And, and, and what also happened for me was like, I, I went through a bit of an extreme rejection of the idea of gender in many ways, actually. So I kind of stopped, like I stopped, I stopped doing a lot of the more um, stereotypically kind of feminine stuff, I guess in this, in what I think now was, was really an effort to, to kind of philosophically and conceptually and even maybe spiritually align myself with, with this, this framework that felt so important to me. And so what that ended up being was I almost sort of desexualized myself of that, like I defeminized myself because I felt like I was betraying womanhood somehow in participating in all of these Kind of gestures of femininity um, and that's kind of went on went along maybe with a little bit of a depression i was having i was feeling kind of hostile towards my husband not for anything to do with him but because i think of this i think
think it was because of actually a lot of the trauma that I had experienced as a young girl um, in this culture that was so profoundly um, misogynistic, really. Um, and so it took me a couple of years to kind of calibrate and to recognize that I actually don't have any obligation to um, like to become like a poster woman for this movement, right? So I, I that that my the way that I saw myself in the in the world of 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 this politic really kind of shifted, and I sort of recognized that actually I love femininity and I love wearing my dresses and jewelry and like doing my hair and and. And no, nothing about that is feminist, and that's fine. I don't have to like embody my politics at all. I can do whatever the hell I want. Um, <laughs> Thank you for speaking to that. First of all, um, uh, kind of yeah, your your kind of journey in and out. And I mean, I don't I don't necessarily see a conflict. I mean, in the one sense, you know, the line is you know like what is adornment versus what is you know, performing a gender stereotype and wearing like a flowery dress or jewelry. There doesn't seem to be any kind of conflict there for me in terms of like my my viewpoint of being a feminist. I, I guess where where do you see the conflict? Like, is it with shaving? Is it with makeup? Because even with makeup, I mean, that's a really interesting conversation to talk about, like the line between adornment and um, um, performance for the male gaze. It sounds like you said the line for you is wearing flowery dresses and, and jewelry. And I'm curious to why you've drawn that, that line to be outside of the radical feminist analysis. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. No, you know, I think I've come to the point where I don't, I don't really feel like there is any line, but I did at the time, you know, 10 years ago when I kind of came into this, this awareness or this politic, I did, really see every every aspect of well i guess maybe i i would say that i still do see every aspect of um participating in this sort of femininity of adornment as a facet of playing to the male gaze. I don't know if it's possible to escape that, honestly. Um, and also, I don't really think that there's a problem. So I actually don't shave now, but I may in the future. And I feel really easy about that. Um, and occasionally I wear makeup, but not often. And yeah, I mean, I think for me, it has actually my journey in and through radical feminism has become very personal. And I feel very comfortable now in my own skin, in my own habits, and entirely unbothered by, you know, any any judgment that, that that may or may not exist out there. But this is also this this whole conversation about, you know, where is the line? Is there a line? Um, you know, what is it to perform femininity? Are we doing it for the male gaze? Is there any, you know, is there such a thing as like shaving just for myself? I don't actually think so. I don't really think that, yeah, that, no, it's, it's not. But, but also, it's fine if you want to shave and if you feel, you know, compelled by, you know, the, the politics of sexuality, we all are. It's, I think it's inescapable and that's fine. But what was happening for me around this time too, was that 
I had joined a number of um, private social media uh, groups around feminist activism. So we were having these kinds of conversations in these groups. And, you know, I really felt like I had found a sisterhood. And, and, and this was, again, at, around the time when our son was starting to um, kind of become really interested in these stereotypically feminine accoutrements. Um, and we, I ended up having an experience with my son that really rocked my world. So my husband grew up in a very um, conservative evangelical Christian home um, and his parents are very socially conservative and they're really, really, really good people. Um, and we had taken our son who was five or six at the time to sleep over at his grandparents. And um, I'd gone to pick him up and we were driving home and he was in the back seat and we were just chatting. And I said, you know, how was your time there? And he said, Grammy told me that my sparkly shoes are just for girls. And I said, oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry to hear that. No, 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 Grammy's entirely wrong. You know, shoes are, are for everybody. It is true that, you know, in this time and place, sometimes there are things that other people consider are more appropriate for girls than for boys, but they're actually wrong because anyone can wear anything. And if you like to wear sparkly shoes, that's fine. And he said, well, Grammy said that they're just for girls. And now I'm thinking that maybe I'm a girl. And we were on the highway. And as he said that, I literally pulled the car over and I stopped and I turned around and I said, sweetheart, you can wear whatever shoes you ever want to wear anytime. You can do your hair however you like. You can wear dresses if you like, and you are a boy. You have a penis and testicles and you will always, always be a boy. And you are my perfect child and your body is perfect exactly the way it is and granny just doesn't understand and if you like your sparkly shoes i like your sparkly shoes it's awesome you're great you're perfect and then we went home and he pranced around in his sparkly shoes and dresses for you know the next couple of months and then his attention, um, you know, became much more focused on, you know, Lego. He loves Lego. He's a huge reader. Um, and uh, it actually crossed my mind that a couple of times, you know, in his childhood, and, and I think this is a reflection of my own um, you know, programming and biases, but I kind of wonder, like, maybe this child, maybe he's gay. Like, we'll see, right? Um, and that child is now 12. And I don't think he's gay, but if he were, that would be absolutely welcome and, and wonderful. Um, he's not really interested in, in anyone in that way yet. He's, he's, um loves to build stuff and, uh, and, and no longer seems to have any interest in wearing dresses or sparkly, anything. And so that experience was really rock, it was kind of earth shattering because this was right at the time where when um, all of these stories were starting to just 
come out in the media just like it was a, just a tidal wave of, of endless stories of trans children. And of course, I was in the world of birth at the time as well. And I actually wrote a blog post about this experience with my son because I was seeing all these other families go through similar things. And, and, and it was so interesting to me to kind of move through this with our child because it was so simple. Like it was so simple. We had one conversation and I was very, very, very clear in that conversation. But like, it was, that was it. All he needed to hear was like, you're just fine. You play with whatever you want. You dress however you like. You're perfect. It's all good. Um, and so it felt really important to me to share that experience with the world. So I wrote this blog post. And at the time we were living in Fredericton, New Brunswick, which is a white collar, very kind of middle class, very small city. It's the capital of New Brunswick, East Coast, very old school, like conservative, but also like very leftist as well, like socially. Anyway, it's an interesting place um, and it's very small. And so I wrote the story and people already kind of saw me, I think as a bit of a weirdo because, you know, I, I do natural birth stuff. But when the story came out, um, I had a friend at the time who I had known for quite a few years, who was a really out and loud and proud lesbian um, and quite a feminine presenting lesbian. Um, and, and talked openly about her sexual politics and was like a feminist and, and we were buddies and we were kind of part of this arts community in this city. And uh, I hadn't seen this friend in a couple of years. She'd actually gone to Toronto, I think, to do a, a graduate degree, interestingly. Um, and around the time that I published this blog post, she came back to Fredericton and I saw her at a cafe that I used to frequent and her, <laughs> you're going to laugh as well, her appearance had changed drastically. No longer was she like highly kind of femme fatale. You know, she used to wear like bright red lipstick and her hair was long, but she was again, like a very proud political feminist. She looked just like, just like uh, Judith Butler. Like, like she had styled herself after Judith, but Judith Butler's like she had the kind of like shorn hair up the back and like she looked fabulous. I thought it was a great look on her. Um, and uh, I ran into her at this cafe and we ended up talking about gender politics and she actually asked me my opinion and said that she had read the story that I'd written about my son. And I, you know, very openly and frankly shared with her what I, what I thought. And uh, it was an interesting conversation. And one week later, she had put up uh, her GoFundMe campaign to, um, to raise money. Yeah, to have, um, to have her breasts surgically removed. And I had no idea at the time of our conversation that she was on this trajectory. And it was just such an interesting and really devastating kind of uh, just intersection of, of events. You know, my child, all of these news stories of children who, of course, you know, I, I was under, you know, 
I, I started to really immerse myself in, in every aspect of this. And I started to learn that these kids were actually being given cross-sex hormones, that these drugs, these pharmaceutical drugs are, um, yeah, I mean, it, it just renders children infertile for the most part. It just totally destroys their bodies over the long term. I mean, it's, it's just, it's absolutely astonishing. Um, so yeah, this was really, really interesting. And so um, I started to uh, basically my entire social structure completely disintegrated. Um, this this woman who I had been friends with, who was who identified as, as a lesbian, who did end up flying to Toronto. Um, she had raised, I think, fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. She flew to Toronto um, and had her breasts, um, you know, handed money over to a surgeon and had her breasts um, uh, cut from her body. Um, and, uh, she ended up writing a bunch of articles about me and what a transphobic, terrible person I am. I lost my entire social circle, essentially, um, you know, barring a couple of close friends who, who stayed friends with me. And, um, and I was blacklisted from the arts community in Fredericton, basically. And, you know, in, in none of my writings, I have, I have never, ever stated anything other than, um, I believe that to be a woman is to be an adult human female. You know, I, I, I don't call for harm to be brought upon anyone. I profoundly believe in the importance of people living their lives free from uh, oppression and violence. I'm a pacifist. Um, you know, I stand for, for, for gay rights, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the whole thing is really interesting. And, and this was also around the time when um, in Canada, Bill, I think it was Bill C-16 was being um, uh, pushed through. So yeah, all of these things were happening. It was really, really interesting. Um, yeah, and and here we are now in the time of Rona. And, uh, you know, as we were kind of chatting about before you started the recording, it's so fascinating to me to see that so many of the feminists that I felt such a sense of connection with and sisterhood with um, are fully embracing the, uh, the pandemic narrative and, and lockdowns and masking, um, all of which is really being uh, promoted by the very same pharmaceutical companies that um, have such a vested interest in perpetuating this idea that biological sex does not exist, and that we all have a fundamental right to decide whether we feel like we'd like to be a man or a woman, um, that we all have a fundamental right to um, access whatever, uh, I see it as a cosmetic surgery, um, you know, whatever surgeries we like. Um, and it's interesting too, because this friend of mine who was the lesbian who had her, her breasts cut off, um, this was also happening around the time that my own husband um, was having serious health issues. He has an autoimmune disorder and he was unable to walk for two years as he waited for hip replacement surgery. Um, and so from that perspective too, simply from the perspective of you know public health and, and public access, I mean, I actually don't uh, support the kind of socialized healthcare that exists in Canada. Um, I have a lot of issues with, with that whole paradigm, but um, given that that structure is in place, it's quite baffling to me that um, a, a country that purports to lack funding for uh, life-saving surgeries 
um, is nonetheless offering to fund uh, so-called gender confirmation surgeries, which I I don't uh, I don't support at all, for a number of reasons. So, yeah, I mean the whole Rona thing is really interesting. Um, so, before we get more into Rona, which I want to come back to, um, I want to just touch on the the common experience that radical feminists or gender critical women have. Um, of being called transphobic and what that actually, what they're actually saying. Because I think actually by, you know, often I hear women, but I didn't say anything mean about trans people or like, I, I really, I don't, they, they don't bother me at all. I just also believe in biological reality. But I think like what has to be said is that we don't believe in true trans. Like we don't think that there's like the true trans and the, the fake trans and that some people should get access to, um cross-sex hormones but the, the just the kids shouldn't like we don't we like they're the word trans is completely meaningless because it's on the premise of you, you know with the assumption that one can go from being male to female or female to male which we know is totally absurd and cannot happen by any um regardless of of uh, the availability and the access to cross-sex hormones and all these different surgeries and even you know you, you said the term um cosmetic surgery. And, and even that is just such a euphemism for just like mutilation. Right? Well, I think it is. That is my personal opinion on the matter. I do not, uh, I don't think it's a good idea to have healthy organs and tissue um, excised from one's body. That's my personal view. Now, I think this is a really interesting kind of conversation because um, I receive a lot of criticism from people who suggest that my claim that I believe in freedom of speech, that I believe that, you know, for example, women should have the right to, well, we should have the right to express what I see as an inalienable right to our biology, um, in regards to where, how, and with whom we give birth. And I've received a lot of um, feedback from people who, who, who believe that I am a hypocrite um, and, and who, who suggest that I am somehow suggesting that people's rights to their own self-expression or you know, their own way of being in their bodies should be curtailed. Now, that's not the case at all. I actually am solidly in support of any adult person doing whatever they like to their own bodies. Okay. I, I, I really do believe in, 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 in bodily autonomy. So yeah, this is, people are actually calling into question my, my, my support for, for bodily autonomy um, based on what, what my beliefs and thoughts are around gender ideology. So what I would say is that I absolutely support any adult modifying their body in whatever way they choose. Okay. So if a man wants to saw off his penis, he, of course, he should be able to do that. I do not think that it is ethical or appropriate for a doctor who has ostensibly taken, you know, perhaps not a literal vow, but, you know, one would hope some kind of, um, you know, notional vow to, uh, 
protect the health and well-being of other humans. Like that is the purpose of being a doctor. Isn't I mean, of course, we know it's not, right? So yeah, there's that. But but I think that there's a massive, massive moral and ethical problem with this society that we've created, which in in which we can hand over cash money to someone to uh, enact what I see as objective harm, right? So I think hum- adults should have the right to do whatever they want to their own bodies. But I actually think that it is a, a huge, uh, it's an abrogation of, 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 of what is ethical and moral for a doctor to willingly um, mutilate a healthy human being. So that's sort of where, where, I, where I see it. And, and this is a, a hugely profitable, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really quite, it, it's, it's quite amazingly profitable, actually. And, you know, this is, this is part of how allopathic um, industrialized pharmaceutical medicine works, right? Um, we have to create a population of willing consumers. Um, and that project begins before birth, right? It, 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 it's, it's being um, programmed into us throughout pregnancy. You know, women are convinced that our bodies are flawed and faulty throughout the course of our pregnancies. You know, we're subject to all that programming. It's designed to uh, have us question our intuition, to disconnect ourselves from our bodies. This constant barrage of, of testing, diagnostics, it's really part of the process of initiating us into the framework of capitulation um, and dependency and of seeing ourselves as willing patients. So by the time the birth process rolls around, we're already shell-shocked as mothers and you know we're prepared for the onslaught of abuse that's the industrial birth process. And so by the time a mother and her child are discharged from the hospital, that mother is totally disoriented, right? Um, the incredible hormonal matrix of, of you know, birth that's designed to have us fall so deeply in love with our children that we're literally in a state of ecstatic bliss is, um, you know, pretty systematically destroyed. Uh, so most, most mothers really emerge from birth without the kind of indelible connection with her baby that is biologically mandated. And instead she's prepared, you know, literally prepared mentally, physically, hormonally as well to put her baby in a beautifully painted cage you know, give it a bottle of chemical sludge mixed with water. Um, most babies receive an onslaught of injections, you know, at birth or soon after. Um, and then through, throughout childhood, those injections are, you know, through the roof. And um, all of this is, is really by design. And so the whole idea of, of gender, I think, has been manufactured by this, this medico-political system um, in order to establish you know, a, a, a larger subsection of, of, of patients, really. And I think we're seeing this um, really accelerate in, in the play out of Rona right now, because uh, you know, one of the best ways to continue to fund this pharmaceutical machine is, is through injections as well. And, and I think um, you know, just the, the, the kind of um, the symbology of the injection, I mean, that's a huge part of gender ideology um, the, the sort of medical framework of, of, of the gender ideology piece as well. You know, the, 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 te- the, the testosterone injections are, I mean, it's become a kind of ritualized um, initiatory process in and of itself. 
itself too, right? I mean, it's just, it's so huge. And, and it's, in, it's inextricable from, from what's happening um, in regards to uh, this pandemic narrative, I think. Which, which is also why I find it so interesting and, and amusing, but also devastatingly sad that such a large proportion of the radical feminist community is on one hand so brilliantly critical of um, the pharmaceutical machine in regards to how it functions with, uh, within the gender ideology realm and yet utterly myopic on the other hand, when it comes to what's happening in the context of Rona. Um, and I think I, I mentioned, you know, I have been um, over the course of this past year, as I have been you know, speaking out quite publicly about my, my, uh, my thoughts on, on what I see as the controlled demolition of, of the economy and, and of the, the culture, um, relationships, everything really. Um, I've, basically been blacklisted from the radical feminist community now as well, um, which uh, was initially really shocking to me actually, and, and really hurtful and sad. Um, and now I, I feel fine because I've found lots of other interesting people um, to form community with. But, but actually that experience too kind of rattled me in a way because um, I think that also has gone along with a lot of uh, just some massive reconsiderations on my part as far as uh, everything that I held dear, really. I mean, I have radically shifted my perspective on almost everything um, in my life. And I, I don't live in Canada anymore. Um, I was actually invited to, uh, to attend a twin birth in Central America, and that's where I am with my family now. Um, and it's really interesting to see how the the kind of gender piece is interwoven uh, into so many aspects of life and life in different parts of the world too. You know, I'm sure you see that too, Isabella, in the conversations that you have. But um, I was speaking with um, a new friend of mine here in Central America, and just the feedback that I get on the topics that I discuss publicly are really interesting because I brought up the idea of the patriarchal reversal in one of my recent videos, which is a concept that Mary Daly um, kind of brought to the fore. Uh, and that's what I see really playing out through Rona as well. I mean, everything has been inverted and subverted and kind of turned on its head. And I had one new friend come to me and say, you know, yo, you're so interesting and you talk about all these interesting things that are so relevant, but I wish you'd just leave the gender ideology piece alone because like you just, you just lose me, you know, when you go there. And I don't understand why I have to bring that in because uh, it's going to create so much defensiveness and, you know, people feel so sensitive about it. And it was, I was really grateful that she mentioned that because it showed me that I have not been adequately um, kind of explaining why I feel that it's so important to now speak on this publicly and to relate it to what's happening with Rona. Because ultimately, I think, I think all of this is in many ways by design. Now, I don't mean that in the kind of conspiracy theory way that I think a lot of people might assume. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't also believe that, of course, 
there are conspiracies. I mean, I would perhaps argue that the entire gender ideology movement is in a way a conspiracy. I mean, it's, it's, I truly see it as a manufactured, um, it's a manufactured ideology on the part largely by the pharmaceutical drug cartels. Um, and so I see Rona very similarly. And I think that the gender ideology movement had to happen first, because if you can convince a population that biological sex doesn't exist, when we are human beings and penis plus vagina equals baby, then you can move ahead and convince everyone that we're all going to die from a flu-like illness and we have to cover our faces and engage in this ritual humiliation um, initiation experience that uh, that we're all inevitably inevitably participating in so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, I was just having another conversation with another wise woman about the yeah the mass hypnosis that that we're a lot that that most are under in regards to gender ideology and then how that you know totally relates to Rona and and then just the masking. I mean, it's it's you know uh, I have this group series that I run in part of that that set the segment of you know session five of that group series we we do practice using your voice so we do role play and i engage with the women as a trans ally or trans rights activist and um you know it just struck me how absurd it is that actually we're that i'm trying to instill like practice using your voice when literally everyone is muzzled like what a time to practice using your voice when you are not just expected to self-censor and use the gender identity lexicon, but actually like not to breathe on anyone. And so it just, it just struck me as totally absurd. Like, you know, I was like emphasizing the need to do, have these conversations in person. And then, you know, the feedback was like, well, I don't see anyone, <laughs> you know, like after having been a doula in the obstetric birth system, and as you described, kind of like the, the prenatal grooming that happens that, you know, amounts to the, the horrific event of, of, you know, a birth in the system and all the abuse that, that, that occurs, it was easy to pick up. I think the trans stuff was easy for me to get out of, you know, in, in the sense that, the gaslighting is so clear in industrial birth. Like there are doctors and midwives literally lying to your face or your client's face saying like, you can't have this baby. Your pelvis is too small. Sorry, you're only five centimeters. You know, it's going to be another three days. Like just the, just the most like absurd things, not not just not evidence-based, but just flat out lies, just, just lying constantly. Um, yeah, I used to come back from hospital births and just say, like, I just came back from opposite world, you know, that was opposite world. And that's how I feel about kind of what we're in now with trans ideology. 
um, it is literal opposite world. And then, you know, as you've made, there's the, there's totally a case. And I would agree with you that that Rona is totally, um, you know, this, this opposite world where like we can't breathe on each other and touch one another as humans, as mammals, like this is crazy. Yeah, I've, I've had a number of really interesting conversations with people just having to just lay down the law about the fact that we're dimorphic and like the humiliation that sometimes happens during this conversation is just like, oh my God, like I, I've totally been duped. Yeah, you know, I think one of the reasons that this whole politic has proliferated to the degree that it has is actually because women have been so successfully groomed and programmed to capitulate to just to be gaslit. I mean, we are, <laughs> it's so interesting to me. Like the, I, I rarely ever, ever, ever come across a man who has in his Instagram profile or, you know, email signature, he, them, it's almost <laughs> always women, isn't it, Isabella? Like it's almost always, always women who feel that they are, who feel compelled to really proclaim their virtue. And it's almost like this, um, it, it's, it's almost, uh, uh, well, not almost, I mean, it is. It's, it's a, a kind of show of, of diminutiveness. It's a show of, 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 um, of submission, really, mm. to, to this kind of bullying ideology that has, has, has really taken over um, almost every institutional space, including, of course, the world of birth. I mean, more so than any other space, birth has been uh, co-opted by this ideology in a manner that is just unbelievable. And you were mentioning earlier uh, that there are so few birth organizations that are willing to even use the words woman anymore. And it's actually for that reason that I am so delighted at every opportunity. I will always, always, always use sex language. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I, I shared a little bit with you about the experience of, of, of losing my community and of being threatened and, you know, of really being bullied and harassed and, um, and, and trolled fairly harshly, I would say. Um, and I was also actually um, threatened with death and, and rape with a, with, with a lady dick. Um, so I, I got a few of those. Mm -hmm. And then I also had people in my community tell me that if I continued to speak out about my perspective on gender, that they would contact my employer, because at the time I was working in academic administration, that they would contact my employer and have me fired. And I actually, at that, I did absolutely retreat. Um, and that's because I was the sole breadwinner for our multiple children. And this is the way that women are shut up and shut down, right? Because women are caregivers and women often are mothers. Um, and I think that's also one of the reasons that this whole movement has had the kind of success that it has because it is so incredibly, um, uh, it, it, uh, 
very authoritarian um, and it, it, it quite frighteningly so. And, you know, this is really related so much too to my increasing passion on the topic of freedom of speech because what's happened, you know, in Canada and in lots of other places in the world through these bills like C-16 is that what's, we've actually not only have we created this social kind of cultural movement, but that we've actually uh, entrenched into law um, these notions that erase, that, that functionally really do completely erase the, the, the massive strides um, in the area of women's rights that the second wave feminists um, uh, uh, fought so long and hard for. Um, so, you know, for super quickly, for example, in Canada, you know, C-16 essentially uh, enacts um, a, a kind of human rights case on the basis of gender identity. But if you actually think that through to its logical conclusions, um, if what that means is essentially that, you know, if a 64 year old, six foot five uh, man wearing a dress enters a change room, by law, when he utters the words, the magic words, I am trans or I'm a woman, that makes it legally so. And if I'm in that same change room with my six-year-old daughter and I have an objection to this person, this individual's presence, um, you know, naked in the showers, I am actually committing a hate crime according to Canadian law, when I go to the front desk and I, uh, you know, I complain. So um, I think it is a huge problem. I think it's a, it's a monstrous problem that, that we've created. And then there's the whole issue of women's sports that has been just completely destroyed uh, for the same reason. And, you know, I think it's really, it's one of those things that, um, again, going back to, to, the, the beginnings of this politic in academia, um, it has kind of been brought into law kind of by the back door and, and by very insidious um, ways by people who are not at all interested in, um, you know, an open debate um, and a free discussion. Um, and, and fundamentally, these are people who um, I would say are, uh, quite authoritarian, actually. I mean, this is what's happening in the world all over the place. Again, with Rona, there's this, I mean, it's a medical dictatorship as I see it. Um, and it, it really corresponds exactly with, with what's happening with, with the trans ideology. And, and um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking publicly more and more about um, what I see as the importance of freedom of speech um, because uh, who, who has the authority to uh, define what constitutes hate? You know, I actually don't even support hate speech laws, I realize now. You know, I've come to that realization myself because, you know, that was just hateful to one person is pure truth to another. And so, I don't know, I just, I, I, I find it uh, very disconcerting what's happening here because, again, you know, there are so many women who have actually been fired from their positions, especially in academia. I mean, what's happening in the academic world right now? I mean, I think it's the same thing in a way that's what's, as what is taking place in, in the world of, 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 of medicine. I think it's really the sort of revelation that all of these systems are, are actually so intertwined and so incestuous um, that, 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 that in large part, um, you know, Ivy League institutions, universities are essentially like money laundering schemes 
for uh, big pharma because it's pharmaceutical companies that actually write the textbooks for you know medical programs at Ivy League institutions mm-hmm. um, and so I just I mean I feel so lucky to be alive at this time because I think we're really witnessing the sort of breakdown of, of trust in so many ways. Um, and I think the more that people like us can speak openly on these topics in a way that it's just so clear. Like I, I am not calling for anyone to be harmed. I am not in favor of violence in any way. I, I truly believe so profoundly that everyone has a right to, you know, live the way they like. You know, I would describe myself if pressed as a, I don't know, maybe kind of anarcho-syndicalist libertarian, but I, I mean, I'm not entirely opposed to any kind of structural organization, um, but I think that human beings have an innate desire to organize when we are free and to organize in a way that actually does benefit each other, but that true community um, actually can only occur in a situation in which individual people hold sovereignty and have the power to speak openly um, and, and and hold uh, themselves as as individual uh, free agents, basically. So, yeah, it's a very interesting time. Where do you where do you see it going? I mean, just in terms of like a women's movement, do you are you interested in a women's movement, like specifically, or are you kind of moving more towards a kind of um, a different a different paradigm because there's there's a lot of there's a lot of talk you know obviously in, in radical feminism you know just about the need for coming together for common cause across you know not not just across party lines but really like operating from the question with every single decision in in the world how will this you know Karadansky said this to me just this week, you know, how operating from the, the, the question constantly, how will this affect women and girls? You know, any policy, any proposal, any bill, any kind of community agreement, whether, you know, whether that's legal or in your, you know, kibbutz or commune or wherever, you know, you are, but, but always coming back to the question, how will this affect women and girls? So, so how do you, how do you see people or maybe more specifically women organizing beyond kind of what you and I are doing, which is, you know, speaking to a wider audience and then also, you know, working one-on-one in in our communities in in a kind of birth capacity? That's such a great question, Isabella. And, you know, um, as I, have mentioned a couple of times during this conversation, uh, this past year has been immensely revelatory for me in so many ways. And I've found myself moving increasingly away from
identifying as a feminist, but also moving away from doing work that is specific to women and girls in favor of um, more generally working um, in a kind of anti-corporate or pro-sovereignty, um, pro-humanity uh, space. I mean, the whole, just mask mandates, for example, you know, this is founded on this idea that we are essentially as human beings walking biohazards. Um, you know, it's such an erosion, as I see it, of our rights, um, but also of the kind of the very conceptual notion that we are our bodies and that the margins of our bodies are, are sacred. Um, and I think one of the reasons that mask mandates, injection mandates, and trans ideology, all of those issues have become so normalized is because we're living through the sort of bifurcation of the notions of what it means to be human even, right? Like the margins of our bodies are no longer seen as like sovereign private space. And I think we can see that play out in, in, in all of these different ways. So I think in part, to be honest, because I've sort of been like <laughs> dismissed by the feminist community. Like I, I don't really, I mean, I, I don't really have any feminists in my circles anymore as strange as that might sound like i mean you and then there's a couple of outlier feminists who who kind of see see rona in, in in a similar way that i do but but the larger feminist community like they're nowhere to be um and so that has influenced the, what i'm about to say but when when you mention um you know the, looking at the world through the lens of of, of asking ourselves how does this, this affect women and girls my lens has shifted over the course of this past year. And my primary interest is how does this affect my children? And then also, how does this affect all of humanity? And where are the people who are in alignment with my own commitment to sovereignty and freedom and um and biophilia i guess you know and that's i think prior to this year i did see myself so strongly as a feminist and i was like in it for women and girls and i still feel that way but i actually have so much more compassion for men and so much more softness for um yeah, men in the world and, and a much, I think, more complex um, and maybe more confused actually as well, but in a good way, um, kind of understanding of, of male, female uh, dynamics, economics. Um, yeah, and I, I guess I've started to feel like things are moving so quickly right now in the world that I'm not sure if, I, th I think 
I wonder if maybe the wisest course of action is to, uh, yeah, just gather whoever is around. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that, that for me at this point in my life anyway, um, a specific devotion to feminism in particular doesn't feel as practical as it did a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. I think there's, yeah, there's a lot there, but uh, yeah, I definitely have a much more complex um, and, and maybe much more fraught understanding of, of, uh, of all of these dynamics now. Thank you for speaking to that. I mean, I know there's going to be a lot of questions after I put this out um, in a great way, you know, um, because I, you know, I just see you as being such a force for women and girls. And so the idea that you are moving away from feminism, I, I totally understand what you're, what you're saying intellectually and it, it actually doesn't match any, you know, it, like in a practical sense, you're exactly the same woman centering women and girls and also holding you know as you said to thinking like what is practical what i hear is is more of like a survival tactic at this point you know um who's left who's left standing like who can i rally to be with me in this journey and in these changes and um with the new yeah. world that that that's it exactly actually isabella i mean all told there are there are few people um, in my life who are as willing as I am to like, hold particular lines. You know, we all have our own lines. Um, yeah, I, I, I it, it, it's, it's, it's such a complex thing. It's hard for me to even really articulate what, what, what's happening in my mind right now. But, um, but I think you're right. I, I am absolutely the same person, but and, and my, my passions and my commitments remain the same. I mean, completely devoted to, um, to, to women and babies, especially in the context of birth and mothering, but in general, for sure. But, but I think as well, quite literally the future of humanity does really ride on um, our willingness to I don't know, be, be soft in some ways and, and to be open to collaborating with, with anyone who really holds um, similar values. And, and I guess this maybe does come down to, to fundamental values. And I had to ask myself this year, like, is my most fundamental value like feminism? Like, what is that? What really is that? Um, when in fact, what my most fundamental values are include myself uh, and my children, my boys and my girls, my husband, um, and, and what it actually means to be human. So I realize now that I was experiencing myself as a feminist, as a way to kind of access what felt most important to me, which was you know, my body and, and my humanity and my place in the world and, and even my spiritual self in a way. And I, I've really been through such an incredible kind of spiritual journey this past year too. Um, and so like the idea of feminism kind of feels like, ah, 
I, it doesn't matter. Like, what, what's actually real for me right now in this experience that we're moving through? And, and it feels much like feminism as a concept, as a politic, feels much less important than, than really holding the line for um, you know, medical freedom and, and the truth of my body and, um, and how I engage with you know, how I perceive spirit and, and, and on all of those questions you know, of, of, uh, around the subjectivities and vagaries of risk and safety and freedom. Um, and you know, it's funny. Like I get, I get ridiculed a lot for talking about sovereignty and freedom, oh, like eye roll. You know, I just find it quite, it's amazing to me that, that those ideas have sort of become so tokenized when what do people ever fight for? Like, what is it to be human? I mean, to me, it's, it is to be free. So, and that's a complex thing too, for sure. But yeah. Thank you so much, Yolanda. Is, is, there, is there anything else that, that you would like to speak to before we close? This has been Aww. such a fascinating, um, brilliant, stimulating, beautiful conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Isabella. I mean, I feel like we could chat for hours and hours. So please invite me again in, in six months and maybe the world will, will, will have gone through another revolution of massive proportions, probably. It seems that way, doesn't it? Sounds like a plan. For sure. okay. oh, thank you so much, Isabella. This has been great. Thank you, Yolanda. And I'll be sure to link your um, website and links so women can follow you if they don't already um, and follow your journey. And yeah, can't wait to have you back on. Thank you so much. Lots of love, Isabella. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit and visit my website, whosebodyisit.com.